0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on overcoming barriers to adoption of transdermal delivery from the 2023 POD Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. For more information on the POD Conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com.
1: Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Great. Thank you for the introduction. Again, my name is Esther Caffarel Salvador and I'm the Associate Director of Strategic Innovation in Rare Diseases at Chiesi. If you heard my talk yesterday, you might be a bit confused of why I'm here, because I'm not directly doing um, transdermal delivery right now, but I spent many years in the field and that's something that still really excites me. And I'm very excited to be sharing um, this panel with uh, Natalie and Tycho. I managed to learn um, by heart your titles, Natalie, but I can see that I I can cheat here with the screen, so I'm going to pass the mic to you and I'll let you both introduce yourselves.
2: Okay, hi, everybody. My name is Natalie Artsy. I'm a faculty member at Harvard Medical School, MIT, and the Wyss Institute at Harvard. And my lab is really interested in uh, designing uh, rationally engineered materials that can prop the biological environment and reprogram it, and really interested in how different delivery administration modes and materials can help us not only enhance efficacy, but expand the therapeutic window such such that we can understand the drug mechanism of action. So I think those two things really feed off of each other, and that's why we love materials.
0: Hi, I'm Tycho Speaker. Um, most recently, Director of Drug Delivery and Biomaterials at AbV Pharma. Um, actually transitioning to a different role within AbV, also in drug delivery and, and CPD. Um, my background is, as, I'm a physical chemist, but I started as, in a career of semiconductor manufacturing and went into um, drug delivery, drug delivery, particularly in delivering RNA therapeutics for an ultra-rare skin disorder called Pachynica, um congenita that turned into a microneedle project that turned into Allergan and AbbVie.
1: Great. Um, so let's start by looking at this space. So transdermal delivery, the skin is the largest organ, very accessible. But why do we want to achieve transdermal delivery? And as a follow-up question, um, what are the advantages and disadvantages? And I guess just an oversight here, because we know um, most of them, but from your experience on uh, what you've been working on, Tycho and intradermal delivery specifically, maybe we can dig a bit deeper, like maybe I'll start with you Tycho, why the skin and uh, what are the challenges of intradermal specifically?
0: Well, I would say that um, transdermal and intradermal delivery um, offer Uh, a whole range of exciting possibilities, um, starting with bypassing first-pass metabolism. Um, The skin is a a target organ in itself, and and I'll probably let Natalie talk more about that in terms of the skin as as an immune organ. Um, The microvasculature of the skin affords very rapid um, absorption uh, upon delivery. Um, Zocino, for example, um, delivered a rescue triptan Um, and got very close to market, unfortunately did not. But they were seeing T-Max 15 minutes. So it was really, really fast uptake for a transdermal delivery. Um, In addition, there are unique aspects of the skin, such as direct access to the the lymphatics. So, for example, um, you can push things with an intradermal or transdermal delivery, you can push things into the lymphatics directly, directly peripheral lymphatics, um, based on molecular weight. And I think of elephantiasis, which affects well over 100 million people in the world in something like 70-plus 70, 70 countries. Um, there aren't many ways to, to deliver directly to the lymphatics. So the skin affords a whole range of possibilities in addition to uh, localized delivery for skin disorders themselves.
2: Yeah, absolutely agreed. So I think my lab really started with the design of nanoparticles, nanomaterials, polymeric and lipid-based for delivery of a range of therapeutics systemically or in a target site. But then we became big proponents of local delivery and developed adhesive hydrogels that can be injected into a particular area to make sure we enhance the therapeutic window, we eliminate the side effects. Then we thought that, in fact, there are many cases where transdermal delivery using a microneedle patch can be really the best of both worlds. It can still leverage everything we know about hydrogels that can be tissue-responsive and localised, We can also make sure that we can uh, conjugate drugs to the gel to control release kinetics, et cetera. We can also embed those nanoparticles and delivery systems inside the microneedles to really combine all of these worlds. But why skin and why local? Again, uh, it can be really great for uh, autoimmune skin diseases and other diseases of the skin like melanoma. We recently published a a few papers in in those fields, really showing that with localized delivery directly at the skin, at the site of interest, if it's a melanoma tumor, or if uh, in autoimmune skin diseases like alopecia, areata, or after a a skin transplant to prevent rejection, there's really no better way to deliver the drug to to the site of interest. In cancer, you can think about local delivery, drainage to lymphatics, and in particular, as we think about immune modulation, leveraging the immune system to train it to recognize cancer cells, eliminate them, and potentially generate memory, so living therapeutics, that makes a lot of sense. You have very high uh, localized delivery of the drug, uptake, and and drainage to lymph nodes. No better way. For autoimmune skin diseases, think about a transplant, think about alopecia areata, vitiligo, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, and so many other diseases. The current standard of care is systemic delivery of immune suppressive agents, usually for life. They're not specific, non-targeted, which means that the entire immune system is down. So while we may be able to treat the disease to a certain extent, Um, We also expose these patients to really high risk of getting infections and other ailments like cardiovascular diseases and even cancer because their immune system is down. When we treat the disease right where it is, we can be much more specific and targeted and make sure that even if we manipulate the immune system locally— Uh, We can potentially suppress, or in fact, our approach is regulate the immune system to train it to generate tolerance while leaving the intact immune system, uh, the systemic immune system intact, really able to protect the patient. So you can really see how local delivery can enhance therapeutic window, take advantage of all the immune cells that are accessible in the skin uh, uh, to really get the outcome that we want. One other thing that we were very interested in doing and I think really can be beneficial using microneedles or transdermal delivery is not only the delivery using this platform, but in fact, the sampling of skin biomarkers for diagnostic purposes. So you can think about microneedle patch that you can apply to the skin that can actually extract and sample cellular as well as soluble biomarkers. And then you can monitor the baseline immunity and a response to a therapy over time non-invasively. So this is just the beginning, I think, the tip of the iceberg of how we can leverage devices that can sample as well as treat uh, diseases that are related to the skin. And I think one question that is still open is how effectively can we uh, manipulate uh, cells in, in the skin to really affect other areas in the body? And, and that, I think, is, a, is an area that uh, still requires some more exploration.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You made great points there. and Actually, I don't want this to be a question-answer. I think we had a great conversation the other day. and like, um, so I'll Yeah, let we're, that
0: we're already into there. the microneedle rabbit hole now. Go for <laughs> it. For SIN, SRNA ther- therapeutics in particular, um, uh, I'm thinking back 18 years, 15, 18 years, we saw really good stability in a dry dissolvable microneedle format. Um, so with regard to SIRNA therapeutics that were discussed earlier, having, um, having your, your API dissolved and then solidified into a glassy polymer matrix can lead to vastly enhanced thermal stability, not to mention the um, the boost in efficacy and dose sparing that you can achieve with vaccine with intradermal vac- vaccination as well. Um, you reminded me of early work we did in in delivering SIRNA to skin where we were trying to just assay wh- how much was getting in, and so we had a population of these these soluble microneedles and uh, assayed them initially to get the the nucleic acid content, straightforward, applied them to to our test subjects, removed them, assayed them again. How much much nucleic acid did we deliver? And they came out with like 10 times as much nucleic acid load because what we had done, first thing a dissolvable microneedle does is hydrate. What's it hydrate with? It hydrates with the host tissue. And so we were actually extracting more nucleic acid content than we were delivering.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of, like, my PhD as well was on microneedles for drug monitoring, and I had actually similar results where I felt like I was generating drug out of nowhere, and (laughs) so that's an important consideration, but I think that the monitoring field is also, like, very exciting, and if we can look at um, devices that can both combine, you know, taking some kind of sampling, maybe sampling biomarkers um, of a specific disease, and releasing a certain drug accordingly based on the needs, um, that would be another exciting field, but let's, I'm going to try not to deviate from our topic today because we can, could take very exciting tangents here. Um, so in terms, you know, in other barriers um, of adoption of transdermal delivery, we've talked about of some of the physical ones or uh, more at the therapeutic level, but um, what about the regulatory? What do you think are the, the main steps that are blocking t- um, taking, you know, transdermal systems through regulatory burdens or also patient acceptability?
2: Um, It really depends on uh, whether you deliver the drug transdermally on its own or with using a material. If we talked a little bit about microneedles, some of the aspects with microneedles, in fact, in terms of regulatory, um, because it's uh, going into the skin, but then you can remove it, um, you, you don't even need uh, to, uh, uh, to, to make sure that you use the, the same, uh, you know, long processes for sterilization and scale-up manufacturing and all of that, uh, because you can apply it um, in an aseptic technique, you know, because it just goes into the skin. It really depends what you combine it with, um, but, but again, since you, um, you're much more localized and there's much less going to other organs, I suspect that, you know, while regulatory may be similar, you will have a better therapeutic window, less side effects, and less complications.
0: Well, this gives me an opportunity to plug the, um, the PATH MAP regulatory working group, um, which is uh, there is a recent publication on the risk of infection following microneedle application. Um, there's more to come from the PATH um, the MAP regulatory working group. It's it, it can be complex, certainly. Um, I think establishing that the drug is actually... You've got to do the basics, right? Did you actually deliver to the skin? What is the repeatability of the delivery? And this is microneedles or, or any transdermal. Um, I think things that are not well taken into account are variations in skin thickness, not only with application site, but with different, different groups of people. And I think... Um, I don't know of any work, and I've been doing this for a while, I don't know of any work that compares different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, all of that for level of skin hydration. Does the amount of sun damage you have on your skin make a difference to transdermal application? There, there are a bunch of these issues. Uh, I think with something like a microneedle patch or an ultrasound delivery or something like that, as compared to... Or, or simply a transdermal patch as compared to a topical one nice thing is the topical is likely to get on your fingers as well and so what's the risk of transferring drug to where you don't want it depending on the, the strength of your therapeutic agent another, another tricky thing if you're looking at any kind of extended wear is the possibility of dose dumping somebody gets in a hot tub or gets in a sauna you can dump the dose and people have died from fentanyl overdose by that very mechanism so there there's always uh, a great deal of detail to be considered in that. And, and if you forget it, the regulatory folks will remind you right away.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a bit more about cell engine therapy. Are they like, able to be delivered transdermally? I know we've touched on many topics. like This will depend on what's um, the therapeutic area, like what's what the organ that you want to treat. But Natalie, you also have done some work uh, in the space, um, so maybe you want to elaborate a bit more on that. What might be the roadblocks for this specific um, uh, Treatment.
2: Yeah, I think some of the roadblocks are similar to other administration modes, right? So when you deliver genes, uh, you usually, you know, they'll degrade rapidly, uh, et cetera, and they won't have good uptake into cells. So particles, nanoparticle formulations are probably still necessary, uh, as well as for cells. When you just inject the cells, a lot of them will die, not necessarily reach the area of interest, uh, with materials, you can deliver them uh, better and protect them. The nice thing about, let's say, a microneedle patch that you deliver to the skin, uh, it can still be uh, based on hydrogels and some materials that are biologically um, you know, supporting of cells, uh, as well as uh, can deliver nanoparticles. So, in fact, the same hydrogels that uh, people are using for the last few decades can be leveraged, and lessons learned from there can be applied to microneedles. It's just a different form of sort of the same material that you can generate via a mold. So leveraging all of this knowledge, you can apply uh, m- microneedles and deliver nanoparticles with uh, different genes of interest. It can be sRNA, mRNA. Anything that you can formulate into a particle can now be delivered using these microneedle-based hydrogels. And same goes for cells. So we showed that we can do all of that and sort of like the translation from you know materials, devices, to um, skin delivery devices was pretty straightforward for us.
0: Yeah, I would I would echo um, that any some kind of transient barrier disruption is very important to cell and gene delivery. Um, the skin is just a remarkable barrier. I mean, it's it's there to keep other people's nucleic acid and, and genetic information out, right? That's that's one of its principal functions. And so, if you look. At structural barriers, gradients, um, even the polarity of the lipids changes from the exterior to the interior of the epidermis. So, um, it's it's very challenging. Not to mention enzymes. Not to mention enzymes. Right. Everybody's covered in RNAs. So, if you try to do a topical RNA, it's a real challenge to get anything to go through, because your body's busy chewing it up, even with protected RNAs. And you certainly need targeting moieties if you're going to try to get it into, you can get it through the skin maybe, but still got to get into the cell, right? So there's there's all of that.
1: Yeah, and if we move a bit more to, like, home care, for example, I've done a lot of experiments, you know, like likely I've had the opportunity to test mostly uh, microneedle patches or similar transdermal patches, both in the skin but also in the buccal space, given that it's accessible. And it's really interesting to see the perception of, like, the volunteers in this case. Many of them have never heard the word microneedle, um, but then once they know what they are, like, they are more keen on potentially, you know, using them instead of an injection. Um, But how far are we from, from that, you know, what's, uh, what are the, the caveats or um, difficulties with maybe at home care or how do you envision, you know, let's say in a few years, um, how do you think like these uh, devices could progress into the market and like how is the general population um, going to be receptive or not about them?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing is compliance. You know, when you go to the clinic and you get an injection, um, the physician knows that you got the injection and you know the dose and, and everything. But when it's at home, it really depends on the patient. So compliance will be major. And two, uh, what do you do then with the microneedles, right? Do you send the sample back? Uh, to see how much drug maybe is left in the patch and not uh, uh, did not penetrate the skin? Or if we think about diagnosis and sampling, is there a diagnostic device you know co- that is part of this that can give you the output and quantification? Or do you just remove it like a Band-Aid and again send it to the physician and there will be analysis in, in uh, uh, central labs, et cetera? So it really, uh, I think the evolution of those devices and how well it will be integrated in terms of Therapy and diagnosis uh, will, will also dictate how useful it would be. But I would really say compliance is a major issue. And how do you make sure the patient really uh, have applied the Band-Aid and applied it well? Uh, you mentioned the different diseases and it will affect the skin and skin thickness. Think about psoriasis where you have scabs, et cetera. So different severities of the disease, uh, different locations uh, may be more challenging to have the needles, you know, penetrate and apply and release the entire drug. So again, how are we sure that it was applied uh, in, in you know well, and how much drug really went in will be uh, something else that we need to study.
1: Absolutely, I think that many focus groups or some people like express these like hesitation like they rather have someone apply the microneedles um, to them so that they know that they are doing this properly and for that like there are some colorful patches that are indicators of that they penetrated properly or kind of um, somehow like tracking the the dose that has been released and make sure that it's a a proper application and um, that the devices are um, reproducible.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree and and I think there's there's a real challenge to um, the device side Uh, to ensure that the the device functions correctly and that there is some kind of feedback readout with, you know, you've got an audible signal when your auto injector works. It's a little more tricky to do with microneedles, particularly a dissolvable microneedle where there may be a different hydration time, particularly between users there might be a different hydration time. So there's all of that. It's also context dependent so I, I think it's indication dependent. It's also context dependent if you're using, if you've got a a press-and-click applicator that's going to go on your thigh to deliver whatever you're delivering. That may be really reproducible across groups, and you can use a nice strong spring for that. If you're doing something for, for I work for, for AbbVie, and including the Allergan franchise, including Botox. There's a lot of aesthetics indications, uh, as well as medical indications, where you might be applying to specific areas. And some clinical settings are going to be conducive to having a big spring go smack. And, and if it's on your thigh, it's fine. If it's on your face somewhere and, and you're in a, a spa-like setting, it doesn't really go very well for the patient, right? And, and that leads me to um, another thing that ties back, I think, really well to some of the earlier discussions today uh, in which is the home setting appropriate or is a clinical setting appropriate? Well, the home setting... There are a lot of challenges associated with confirmation of delivery and are people using it right and human factor stuff for patients actually trying to use it because humans are so clever at using things wrong. And in the clinician's office, you're asking, if you're coming with a different therapeutic modality, I think this is a challenge across any, any novel technology, any novel delivery system or anything like that. If perhaps an ultrasound in a hospital setting, that can work. But if your target is clinicians seeing patients in their offices, then, well, how many people in the room have a TV? Bunch of people have a TV. So I wanna sell you a new TV, and I've got a great bunch of shows. They're not the shows you always watch, but they're wonderful shows. But you can only watch them on my TV. So I wanna sell you a TV to go along with your existing TV. How many people wanna buy a second TV, and where are you gonna put it in your house? That is the essential question that you're putting to the clinician when you offer them a therapy that's going to take up shelf space that's not a syringe, that's not a vial. God help you if you're trying to get into the refrigerator. You may be displacing your own products and cannibalizing them, yet that's where most of the reimbursable drug use, that's what's going to be reimbursable, right? So the pharma companies legitimately have to take that into account, have to satisfy shareholders, have to have profit to reinvest, all that good stuff. And and it becomes very complicated, and that's an essential challenge. You want to innovate, but if you make it so novel that somebody has to buy a second TV, it's a it's a really hard space to get into.
1: Yeah, exactly. Simplicity is a bit key there, but also like uh, to get into the shelf, even from a hospital, like you need training personnel many even healthcare providers would not be familiar with the technology and wouldn't know what to do so it's a whole process you know of integration and that's something we need to think about because uh, many times we probably go to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription or um, a medical device and how many times do you read the whole leaflet that is attached with it so it's something very difficult to do even like you think, oh, that must be easy and just um, you know, try to administer some things on your own or just take the medication based on what you read in the capsule and you don't do further reading. So the training um, also might be a, a challenging spot there. Um, great. I, I see that like we are running low on time. So I want to open um, the floor for questions um, in case anyone want to ask our panelists. Okay, we'll continue with our topics of discussion because. <laughs> um, okay, there is one question.
0: So, do you have any advice on sort of what therapeutic applications to consider for transdermal delivery? Um, and sorry if I missed, you already touched on this. Are there, in your view, any therapeutic applications where? One should or shouldn't uh, consider transdermal delivery I, I can jump in with a, a guideline, which yeah. is that um, inherently transdermal delivery is generally going to be very limited to higher potency molecules so if so coming from um, V and, and, uh, and immunology, Skyrizi, I think the the starting dose is 80 MIG and then it's 40 MIG a month there, thereafter. And and it's extremely effective. You're not ever going to deliver 40 MIG using a, a transdermal patch or a microneedle patch, unless it's huge. You know, if you want to have a, a chair that the patient <coughs> lies down on, maybe. So you want to go for high-potency molecules, for sure. You want something where you're ideally going to have the advantage of either avoiding first-pass metabolism or having a very localized delivery or, or a fast onset. Um, if you're going for, if you're trying to do something more long-lasting, transdermal, you can have a wearable patch, but then you really need to address dose dumping and, and making sure that you get the correct fraction of the dose delivered, that it's consistent across different groups, and, and I, I think there's a lot of research to be done there to, to characterize across different groups.
2: Yeah, those are great points. One other thing to add. So in terms of the dose, how much we can load, in fact, there are different types of microneedles. So there are ones that are hollow that you just deliver. There are ones that are just coated, where, for example, a polymeric coating uh, holds the drug. But there are ones that are based, for example, on hydrogels where the entire needle is composed of a material that can deliver a drug. So you can really have a range of doses depending on the design of the uh, microneedle patch. The other thing as it goes uh, with regards to the indications, you have the ability to apply the microneedles, deliver the drug, sample quickly, and remove it within a few hours, and you're done. But there are other applications where you can imagine uh, that the patch stays there for weeks, and then you can have local and sustained delivery of therapeutics, and those can entail different applications altogether. So I think there's still a lot to explore, and there's a, a many diseases that can benefit from that. And I would say, maybe to add to the guidelines, that anything that relates to the immune system, which is a lot, um, you know, it's a great place to start, just because of the accessibility and so many immune cells in the skin that we can uh, target pretty easily.
0: I want to jump in because you, Natalie made a great point. With hydrogel forming microneedles in particular, I would direct you to the work of Ryan Donnelly at Queen's University of Belfast has developed a hydrogel forming needle that, that swells up after insertion into the skin that transmits drug from a, a backing. And so you actually can achieve a lot more and more extended duration. It's, it's, it's not the classic, it's, it's not your, your father's microneedles. It's, it's a really cool new technology.
1: Exactly. I mean, I worked many many years there as well. So, like, you could replace like with uh, silicon wafers, and you have those porous ones, and you can keep replacing them and adding them, and like that's an open conduit that you can um, continue delivering there. But I want to echo like a point that Natalie made before regarding therapeutic areas, so everything related in terms of um, yeah, e- immunoactivation and like especially having worked at a dermatology pharma company, um, any localized skin disease is you know an obvious um, easy target, but Again, then you enter into the question of what's the best transdermal means to deliver. Because if we are thinking of vitiligo, that certainly localized patches, you could uh, maybe target one of them. But if we think of a, a disease like epidermolysis bullosa, where actually the skin is cracked because, like, uh, you the collagen seven like is not um, forming like the the skin. So basically, patients have open wounds. You wouldn't be actually using microneedles or any kind of pressure device into that open wound because it would really be very painful. So, therefore, like, you would have to think of engineering uh, whatever therapy you are aiming to deliver, maybe a gene therapy, maybe you just deliver the collagen 7 um, gene, and it's an open wound, so it just, there is no skin barrier that you need to overcome, so supposedly it would be easier, greater absorption, but again, it's also kind of a a disease that might be want to treat it systemically, because it's usually, even if you have a wound expressing in one part of the body, like, uh, there are more to come in different parts, it's not only localized. So there is a whole thought, like, of matching, you know, like the the delivery system with the disease that you are um, targeting there. Um... Well, I all of a sudden like we run out of time, so I guess that with that, thank you for the great question, Annette, and I'm gonna thank our panelists, and I don't wanna you know delay you from going home tonight. So thank you so thank much. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Pod Conference editorial podcasts or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thanks for listening.